Kellogg calls out of the blue. And I had, Kellogg had called me like 10 years earlier and I like a ninny had said, eh, Kellogg, who wants to go work at Kellogg? of Alabama's Cobras College Business, it's Bam Means Business, a podcast that reveals amazing stories from most people who both inspire and make a difference in our community. I'm Cole Stevens, and on the show today, Dennis Schuler. This is the third part to our five-part series with Dennis, in which in this episode, he's going to cover his stories coming back to the United States, as well as positions in Walt Disney and Kellogg's. Hope you enjoy. So after the six years <coughs> that's based out of the UK, you come yeah. back to the United States. Yes. Uh, obviously... Probably the assignment was over. You want to move to a different position in the company. What was that reason for really coming back when you know, well, Europe was so attractive? Yeah, the real real driver was uh, my kids. My kids were, they were th- two and five when we left. They were seven and 10. So we had a choice. We said either we're going to stay in Europe okay. and move to the continent, you know, Brussels or Geneva, or move back to the U.S. I had an opportunity to go to Brussels, but when I started to look at where do I want the kids ultimately educated? You know, what what is their identity? Right. My wife and I both concluded that, you know, the American thing was most important. So we moved back. Uh, and that was the driver for it. It was, um, man, it was a hard decision. The easiest call was getting the call to go. The hardest call was telling them, you know, it's kind of time. I want to go back because I loved it. We loved it. Loved it there. It was fantastic. Like a, I mean, great experience overall. But then, you know, again, P&G's brilliance was you, you got to do some things as a result of that. So I came in, the company was going through some major redesign work. Uh, we think we called it at the time, Organization 2005, it was really replatforming, rethinking the whole company. So okay. I got in the ground floor of that and ended up being assigned one of the global business units to uh, be the HR support on, which was awesome. And it took me back to my roots. It was, it was paper making. There you go. So all the way back from beauty, all the way back to paper. I did that for three years, had a blast doing that. And then this, uh, this, uh, you know, again, my career has been, um, you have these comments that come through your career that give you, imbue with with light and energy. And this lady called Susan Arnold appeared. And I remember going to see Susan and uh, she had a problem in Europe. Um, and uh, she called me, said, can you come up and see me? And I'd never met her before. She's small, little four foot 11, you know, and she had her feet up on her desk and she was twirling around in her chair. I go, who is this lady? She goes, I got this problem in Geneva. Can you can you uh, think about it over the weekend and come back on Monday? And uh, so I come back with a plan on Monday. I wasn't working in her business unit at the time. And I gave her, you know, what I what I would do. And she goes, this is really good. Go execute it. And I go, well, Susan, I don't work for you. She goes, you do now. She was disarmingly genuine, uh, authentic. If there, you know, authentic is an overplayed word. Authentic selves, I hear that. That's stuff. She was truly authentic, smart as a whip, um, comfortable in her own skin, extremely thoughtful, <clears throat> and um, an impeccable uh, judge of talent. I mean, she assembled, in my humble opinion, the best leadership team I've ever seen in any industry. This beauty business she was running was just juggernauts. And there's probably one, two, three, four, five, six, seven people that are running businesses as CEOs that came out of her her time. Just a phenomenal leader. Wow. And a good friend now. Um, 
but she taught me two or three things that I thought were, um, that have stuck with me. One is always bring your A game, always, because I will. So I remember this meeting, one of my first meetings with her, you get a deck of initiative planning. You know, it's a big thick deck, you're expected to read it. So we get in the meeting and it's evident that one person in the room's not read it. He starts asking questions. And I noticed that when Susan would get frustrated, her glasses would come off. He'd put them on the table and her glasses come off. <laughs> it's on the table. She goes, let me get, for you new people on the team, let me be really clear. I bring my A game all the time. I read everything that's put up in front of me. And that's what the standard is. If you can't meet that, you don't deserve to be part of this team. Are we clear? And you could hear a pin drop, and I'm walking around going, I'm loving this lady, because it's all about discipline. So she taught me, like, discipline. The other thing was strategy. It's like really thinking through where's the puck going, you know, the old Wade Gretzky thing, which is skated where the puck's going, not where it's been. She was brilliant at that. And the third is humanity. She was human. I mean, human at, at, the, at the most personal level. I remember... Um, I remember she lost her temper at one of the GMs, and she came to my office. She was really upset. She goes, I can't believe I did that. I told myself I never, ever would lose my temper because I know what it feels like. And I said, just go apologize to him, which she did, and it all kind of worked out in the end. But the self-reflection she had in terms of what she was trying to improve was remarkable because a lot of leaders have this cloak of imperial imperiousness, you know, I know it all, I've got it all. And yeah, they, they sit on the throne. They, they know they sit on the throne. And she was so authentic. And what she created was this inspired uh, group of people that walked. I mean, I'm not over-egging over this. You would walk through hot coals for this lady. She was that good. I mean, that good. And, you know, that's what caused me to leave P&G. I mean, she was in the running for the CEO role, and they picked the other guy. And we both left about the same time because I said, listen, life without Susan at P&G, no fun. Right. Off I go. Wow. So you leave P&G. Where's life taking you next in your career? My, my next role was Walt Disney. And Walt Disney was, Walt Disney was kind of interesting because I thought it was a single company, Walt Disney. Yeah, it's actually okay. seven businesses under one roof. Okay. You got the theme parks. Everyone's been to them, knows about You got them. the cruise lines, which was nascent at the time. It had a couple of ships. Now I think there's six. You had uh, Pixar okay. and animation Disney Animation Studios. Animation yeah. Studios. You had uh, Consumer. Okay. You had uh, what we call Dimji Digital. It was the harbinger of digital, you know, moving from compact disc to online. Okay. Wow. And then we had, what the hell was the other? And we had Plush, you know, kind of licensing products. So there was okay. seven, seven or eight seven business units specifically. And what Bob was trying to do, Iger, who really top class uh, CEO just retired from uh, from Disney, was drive an arrow through all those seven businesses. They worked in unison together. So, for example, if, if a movie was going to, um, you know, a feature movie was going to be built, we wanted the parks involved in it because they should be thinking about, can we get a ride out of this? Can we get a new ride? Mm-hmm. So take Star Wars, you know, um, you know, part of what the essence of buying a company like Star Wars, which Disney owns now is, you know, can we take what's in the movie screen mm -hmm. and we, can we make it in a ride, a theme ride 
that somebody will go and pay $119 worth of the radius to get into the park to go to this attraction. Right, because Star Wars acquisition at the time was something, I want to say, like $4 billion for Lucas? It was Lucas. four or five, yeah. It was, like, that's an insane was, amount of money to buy was, out a franchise yeah. right there. Yeah, and it's paid big dividends because you see a lot of the a lot of the film is all, you know, it's either Star Wars or Marvel, mm-hmm. which is the other acquisition that they did. And you're talking about taking that stuff on the screen that people see in a movie theater once, yeah. twice, maybe three or four times, if that ends up being a passion of theirs. Yeah. But then you want to create the experience you're talking about, that theme park, trying right. to build out products around that. That's what he was really good at doing? He was phenomenal at that. And Bob was a, uh, was a I, won't, I won't say he was a risk taker, you know, in terms of undisciplined, he was very disciplined. But okay. he, think about 2008-9 when I left the company. I was only there a year because one of my kids got really sick, so I had to, I had to move back to Cincinnati. But I really, I really missed because... Um, at the time, everybody was pulling back in capital. What Bob was, was doing is he was developing the capital for two additional cruise ships. So this was April, I want to say, sorry, 2010 is right yeah, around? It would have been, I joined them in April of 2008. I left in 2009. The financial crisis right in the middle of that. That's what I'm saying. That was a yeah. huge downturn in the economy. I got to yeah. think that Walt Disney was down a lot because the theme parks weren't as popular a lot of people didn't have the money to spend on them but he was always the thing the genius of bob was thinking out in the future like the economy is going to recover i want to be ahead of it so he lit up a couple new cruise ships lit up shanghai which is no small capital investment i can imagine building out Um, build out uh expanded hong kong and then um they had a park out in california which wasn't really good they revitalized that and it was a that's the disneyland i believe is what people say it was a california adventure i think it was called at the time okay they kind of rekindled that and made it better but these were bets he made and like he told me so listen most people are going to pull in their horns we're going to invest ahead of this and he was right so when you see their their stock went from I, I think it was like $28 a share to 140 That's by some of these bets. So this guy has a Hall of Fame wing. Yeah, that, that growth <laughs> And the animals are great CEOs, yeah. 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 So uh, you're working at Walt Disney. You take a few years off in between trying to— I didn't take any years off. I I moved back to Cincinnati. My kid was so sick, I mean, cold, that—well, um, I'll get into the specifics. He went from 230 to about 140, just lost weight, couldn't eat. It was just he had a— and it ended up being a common, uh, chronic disease now. He's had to uh, mitigate now for the last 15 years. So I told the search firms, I said, listen, I, w- I want to continue the work, but I can't I can't be away from home. I can't, I got to be within a four-hour drive or a, okay. or a day flight maximum because we didn't know what we were dealing with at the time because this kid, he'd have good days, he'd have really bad days. Um, Kellogg calls out of the blue. Okay. And I had... Kellogg had called me like 10 years earlier, and I, like a ninny, had said, eh, Kellogg, who wants to go work at Kellogg? I'm running this. And just for everyone listening, yeah. Kellogg, the company, owns a lot of brands, correct? Yeah, they they are. Uh, Kellogg is, uh, I think at the time I was there, it was a $15 billion company, had a cereal portfolio, a snacks business, um, a, uh, I'm trying to think of the cat, frozen food category. Mm-hmm. And a kind of a nascent wellness category like Morningstar Foods. Um, yeah. So Kellogg called, and I could drive it in four hours. Okay. Where's your headquarters out of? By Battle Michigan? Creek. Okay. Battle yep. Creek, Michigan. Uh, nice little town. Uh, I lived in Kalamazoo my first couple of years, and my last two years I lived in in Battle Creek. Uh, it was great because it was easy for me because it was similar to P and G. The categories were the same. The sell through was the same. You go in the grocery stores and so forth. 
But this is an organization that understood food really well. I mean, really, really well. Yeah. And kind of a really nice, and I'm using this word intentionally, nice Midwestern culture. They were just good yeah. people. Yeah. Um, Jim Janess, the chairman, really good guy. John Bryant, who's the CEO, who was newly appointed when I got there. He was appointed within my first six months at 46 as a CEO, was a rock star. Just That, that really, is unheard of when we're talking really about smart. CEOs of companies yeah. right there. Super guy. Um, and the leadership team was fantastic to work for. The hardest thing for me was leaving the company because I, after three and a half years, I, I told myself, guys, I mean, I'm driving. I mean, it's supposed to be four hours. There'd be some weekends I'm on the road nine hours because of the weather. Because it's right up there with all the yeah. snow and cold and I'm, nights. You know, I'm coming back. I'm getting in at midnight on a Friday night at home, and I'm turning around on Sunday morning driving back up. I said, I just can't. That's tough, yeah. Um, and as luck would have it, as I'm leaving Kellogg, uh, Scripps calls. Scripps Network, and for the listeners who don't know what Scripps is, Scripps is a uh, – it's now owned by Discovery. It's part of Discovery Plus, and it was Home and Garden TV, Food Network, and Travel Channel. Well, that's the crazy thing is that I listened to a an art or listened to a podcast two weeks ago where the founder of Discovery is from Alabama too. Yeah, it was yeah. Okay. So you're getting involved yeah. in scripts and what? Yeah, really so I got that there? was that was kind of a one year deal, which is help the company get ready for sale to Discovery. Okay. Yep. And then I jumped from that experience to I'm trying to get my sequence right. Then I went to a semiconductor company called NXP, which was the first time I'd worked in high tech. Okay. It was yep. like. It was wild, like, you know, these chips you can't see with your naked eye. Yep. And you're in bunny suits and wafer farms and so forth. And that company, NXP, had just bought a company called Freescale in Austin. So I was living, this was, um, my kid was a little bit better, so I could live part-time in Eindhoven and travel between Netherlands and Texas and Austin. And my job was integration, integrate Freescale with um, NXP and combine the companies and double it. Um, what NXP is, is it's the driver behind autonomous drives. So anything you see in market about self-drive, they have the chip technology behind it. And the CEO is running at Kurt Seavers. Phenomenal. Mm. Phenomenal. Their chief technology officer, Lars Rieger, amazingly talented technologist, but a great manager on top. So it was really fun to be in a different industry completely. Yeah. It's far different out of my than what depth, you've ever done completely. before. But it was fun. Did was you feel really out of fun. place at all? Like just because you felt like everyone else around you was in that high-tech um, field? I would have been out of place if I signed up for a long-term you know, relationship. But it was clear that it was a one-year, like, get in and help us kind of bring these two companies together. Okay. So I was there for a specific purpose. Right. But I, I think if I'd come on as a... Hey, this is going to be a career move. I, like I'm late stage in my career at that point. I'm going, I would have fell out of place because it's a completely different industry, technology driving it. And technology that I, you know, if you think about internet of things, I never heard the term hmm. until I got there. Like, what is, what's this internet of things? Like every, like there's billions of billions of chips. They're going to go into light bulbs and doorknobs and garages and you know, your car and your heater and your microwave and, I, it's amazing. I, I didn't really know about it until I started reading up on it. Like they even have you know, microchips in like simple light switches. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. how common these things are, which not, not only, not many people I know, like know or realize mm -hmm. it's a thing now. Yeah. So, you know, what I, what I kind of learned from that one, uh, Cole was, um, technology, technology driven businesses, um, where I think P and G and Kellogg, they were more, 
product driven, which is, you know, there was technology that underpins good food and there's technology that underpins a lot of the products, obviously, that P&G produced. But it was a very marketing driven company. Right. It's like show, show a person a spot, you know, get them to buy. Whereas this was this was high, high tech, mm-hmm. very, very different, but a lot of fun. Um, you know, kind of one of my life experiences, by the by, is in Eindhoven in the Netherlands, you know, I would never drive because you got to look both ways. And then you got the bikes that have the right of way, and I could never figure it out. So I hired this guy <laughs> to drive me from the office to um, to uh, to my apartment. And he was a guy, he was a gent that was 82. I got to talk to him. I'm a, I'm a World War II nut. My father served in both theaters, both in Europe and in Asia. So I've really taken a, a real interest in the history of World War II. And he would tell me at night, he would show me different parts of Eindhoven during, because that was Market Garden, the big air parachute drop. And they liberated the city. And then the Germans took it over a couple of days later. It was, it was not a successful operation, but he showed me a lot of the sites. And he says, you know, I, I've taken two of your American sons as family members. And I, I said, well, what do you mean? Yeah. So it's all context, really. Yeah. And he says, I go every week to the cemetery. I said, what do you mean? He says, I go to Margrathen, the cemetery where 8,301 8, 8, soldiers are buried. And I go and I bring flowers and I read and I write poems and I leave them on their tombstones. And I said, well, how long have you been doing this? He says, I've been doing it for 60 years. And I said, what, when you finish, when you pass on, what's going to happen? He says, my son will do it. And when my son passes on, his son will do it, or his family will do it. We will never forget. So I remember that I was in Margrathen two years ago, and I went there by myself and had the whole cemetery myself. And I remember his words. And that's a national uh, moray in the Netherlands, which is they— it's very famous for each Dutch family in the area have adopted two American soldiers. Wow. And they take care of the grave sites. Well, it's taking care of the U.S. government, does it? But they bring flowers. They read and they never forget. I thought that was so cool. That was, again, another one of these experiences that you have as a result of these international experiences that you create and businesses that you run. Just cool. Really cool. Uh, it must have been a very impactful experience for anyone. Extremely. Uh, that's That's... Honestly, it sounds amazing that that's gone. You know, it's something I feel like my generation definitely has lost touch of because most of our maybe grandparents, like personally, my grandfather mm-hmm. served in Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, my other grandfather served in Vietnam, but they never touched the world wars. I mean, they were still very young, if not even born at that yeah. point. But, you know, the last, the very few of the remaining survivors of the world wars are unfortunately, you know, passing away. Right. And we're losing all their stories. And I feel like you sort of lose context and like that American pride mm-hmm. that was so built up and the noble acts where kids, I say young adults, my age yeah. were sacrificed kids were 18, their lives. 19, 20 years old. And it yeah. just blows me away how much it's sort of left out of history. Like it's acknowledged, but in the very macro terms, like <clears throat> this country versus this country, you know, realize mm-hmm. the individual lives that were lost in such conflict. I mean, I would commend it. Um, I, I'm, I know a lot of people have done this, and I'm not saying that I'm I'm the outlier here, but I would uh, I would commend anyone to walk the cemetery. And for me, it was um, it was really poignant because I was the only. It was a cold, brisk day. It was really a cold. I mean, wind was whipping, and all I remember is walking between the headstones, and I was just reading. You know, 20 years old, 19 years old, 18. These kids never saw life, 
And all I could hear was the flag whipping, you know, the, the pole. You could hear it in the background. And that was, the, you, couldn't, you couldn't hear anything other than that. It, it felt like there weren't even any birds or any life in the cemetery. Mm-hmm. And I was the only one there. And I'm going, God, look at these 8,301 people that gave their full measure at 18, 19, 20 years old. And yeah. without sermoning, obviously, what's happened in the world today where people are having social media wars around who said this about who? Give me a break. So to your point, I think we've got a little bit of like history lessons to retake here. Yeah. In terms of what sacrifice really looks like. I was surprised. I'm actually a history major as mm-hmm. well. And you, you just learn so much past high school. Like so many individual stories are left out because mm-hmm. you can't cover it in a, mm-hmm. in a year or anything like mm-hmm. that. It just, it blows me away. I, and this is that. I was surprised because Alabama's got one of the top British history programs in the Nate in the mm-hmm. world, actually. And right. Alabama, Tuscaloosa, like mm-hmm. how do you know anything about England? Mm-hmm. But you start realizing how much is valuable to have historians who are so knowledgeable, they can bring that to, you know, Tuscaloosa, Alabama of mm-hmm. all places. And I think you're you have a very good point with our phones being so accessible now, they can do so much that you lose so much with that. Because mm-hmm. you don't keep your eyes up and you're not looking everything around what's you. going around you. Yeah. And, and you'll see that walking across campus. I mean, you're on your phone the entire that time. Face, face is down in, in the in the screen. I mean, we look, we're at such a, like one of the most beautiful campuses in the nation. And you don't even and realize wasn't a, that. And I got to say, wasn't it spectacular today? 55 degrees, sunny. Beautiful. The sunlight streaming through the big old trees onto the campus. Exactly. It's all nice and green right now. Fantastic. That concludes our third episode of our five-part series with Dennis Schuler. And thanks so much for listening to the show today. If you're not a subscriber, do subscribe to our podcast wherever you get yours. And of course, check out our website at culverhouse.ua.edu to learn more about the Culverhouse College of Business and what it has to offer. And as always, roll tide. <laughs>